Family, you may take your seats. It is always a challenging honor to be asked to share the word. So, thanks to the church leadership for the opportunity to share the word with you. Before we get into the words today, let's bow our heads and pray as we prepare our hearts for the word. My heavenly father, my savior, my healer, my way maker, this morning we come to you. We come to you with expectant hearts and minds. We are fully open to your word that teaches us, your word that corrects us, your word that convicts us, your word that always demonstrates your love for us. Let your word do what, it, what you intended to do this morning. Let it not return back without having accomplished its purpose this morning. We thank you, Papa, for the opportunity and the privilege of hearing your word. We don't take it for granted. We thank you in the mighty and colossal name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Morning, church. Last week, Dr. Murut Matlangu launched our vision for the year, New Dawn, a vision derived from the book of Isaiah 43, verse 19. Prophet Isaiah was unpacking a prophecy to the nation of Israel. They were in captivity. They were slaves in Babylon. So last week we read Isaiah 43, verse 18 and 19. God said, don't revel only in the past or spend your time recounting the victories of the days gone by. Watch closely. I'm preparing something new. It's happening now, even as I speak. You're about to see it. I'm preparing a way through the desert. Waters will flow where there had been no water before. God says to us, don't focus on the past. Don't focus on the hardships and the victories of the past. He was referring to their time in slavery in Egypt and the victory God gave his people against Pharaoh's army when they crossed the Red Sea. This, of course, church, is the literal meaning of the scripture. In verse 19, God says, something new is about to happen. Don't marvel at what I did before. You're about to witness something amazing. I'm going to make a way through the desert. Waters will flow where there was no water before. God is saying he will literally take them out of bondage and out of captivity in Babylon. He will make a way for them in the desert. The people and their livestock won't go thirsty. Again, this is the literal meaning. But because Isaiah is a prophet, there's a prophetic word here. What was the prophecy? What is this way that God was speaking about? What is this water that will flow where there was no water before? To understand and unpack this prophecy, we need to look at the book of Jeremiah 31, verses 31, 33, and 34. Let's look at it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the house of Judah, the southern kingdom. But this covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, 
I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 34. And each man will no longer teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me through personal experience. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, I will forgive their wickedness and I will no longer remember their sins. So family, that is the prophecy. When God said, I'm preparing the way through the desert, the way is Jesus Christ. The personal and intimate knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the knowledge of religion, but the knowledge, personal knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of trying to keep the law by the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, God will write his laws in our hearts. That's what he says. He will write his laws in our hearts. In November last year, Dr. Mukwena taught us about being more than conquerors in Christ. He taught us from Ephesians 6. I don't know if you remember. And he said, we are not going to finish the race unless we lean on God. We are not going to finish the race unless we lean on God. This is true, family. That is why our Heavenly Father says, we must focus on him. We must focus on what he's about to do. There's something new. Him writing his word and his law in our hearts. The something new will come from us knowing him intimately. That something new is Jesus Christ, who is the way in the wilderness. He is the refreshing water, the fountain in the desert. That something new that God wanted his people to focus on, which will bring the new dawn, is nothing else but Jesus Christ. The new dawn is the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's look at what he says to the Samaritan woman in John 4, verse 14. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty. But the water that I give him will, will become in him a spring of water, satisfying his thirst for God, welling up continually, flowing, bubbling with him to eternal life. Jesus is the way. He's the spring of living water. Are we still together, church? He is the spring of living water. Can I be honest with you this morning? Speaking for myself, I realize that there's a part of Christian subculture that has ensured that I never get to experience fully God's water in the wilderness. I realize that there's something that I have to do. God said, watch closely. But this subculture that I belong to blurs my vision. It is a very, very sad thing. And as I unpack it this morning, I pray that those who happen to be part of this subculture will begin the journey with me to surrender this subculture. In the book of 1 John, we read that God is love. So I pray that we don't feel condemned this morning, but we are encouraged and comforted by our Heavenly Father, who is love, to embrace the teaching, and if convicted, 
to do the necessary business with God. Is that okay, church? So what did I realize? I realized that I had to surrender the Christian atheist in me. This morning's teaching is called Surrendering the Christian Atheist. Pastor Elijah touched on the subject last week. He didn't know that God put the same subject in my heart. I must admit, when he started speaking about Christian atheism, I wanted to stand up, coach Tupac as well, and humbly ask him to sit down and not share my topic of next week. But it's not my topic. It is God's word for the season. So what is, what is a Christian atheist? Christian atheist. Let's look at the dictionary definition of the word Christian. It says, a person who believes in Jesus Christ and follows his teachings. A person who believes in Jesus Christ and follows his teachings. An atheist is a person who doesn't believe in the existence of God, existence of God or any other gods for that matter. So a Christian is the one who believes in Jesus Christ and follows his teachings. An atheist is a person who doesn't believe in God or any God. It does sound like a contradiction in terms. It is a contradiction. It's a contradicting lifestyle to live as a Christian atheist. So Christian atheist believes in God, believes in Christ, believes in the power of the gospel, but lives as if God doesn't exist. Hmm. Of course, there are varying degrees of Christian atheism. On the one hand of the spectrum, you could be someone who's spirit-filled. You know, 90% of your decisions and your actions reflect your love for Christ. Every decision you make shows that you belong to Christ. But that other 10%, like when you're under pressure, or you're angry, or you need something to happen quick, you behave and act as if God doesn't exist. You know, you might pay a bribe to make something go smoothly. Am I right? You might say a bad word when you're angry. You know, because I'm angry, I, I can say those beautiful four-letter alphabets. You might speak gossip, speak convenient white lies here and there, what about endless worrying? You know, always worrying about, will this go right? Or oh, will that go right? Will this happen for me? Will that not happen for me? That constant worrying. Maybe he, the person wants to get married, but reckons he won't meet someone, thinking that God cannot orchestrate a way for him. These examples might seem a bit minor, but this disposition, this is the disposition we take as Christian atheists. And on the other far end of the spectrum, you could be a Christian. You know, you believe in Christ. Maybe you were born in a Christian family. You go to church on Christmas and Easter. But every single decision you make, you make it without factoring Christ at all, as if he doesn't exist. The person believes in God, but doesn't know God. The person believes in God, but doesn't fear God. The person believes in God, but is not really sure about this whole Jesus thing. The person believes in God, but doesn't fully trust 
but God can provide for his every need. Paul, in his short letter to Titus, didn't mince his words at all when he described what I think is the extreme form of Christian atheism. Paul wrote in Titus 1 verse 16, Such people claim to know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. I had to examine myself. The way I treat people, does it show who I belong to? Am I brash and inconsiderate to those who are less fortunate than me? Hmm. Paul carries on in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. As I was preparing, I had to keep saying to myself, Romans 8 verse 1, Romans 8 verse 1, Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, just conviction and loving correction. Paul wasn't finished. In the book of Romans 2 verse 23, we read, You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. I ask myself, John, do you rattle off scriptures in public, but privately you break God's law? Unfortunately, we all know the answer to that. <laughs> the Apostle John weighs in, in the matter as well. He writes in 1 John 2 verse 4, If someone claims, I know him well, but doesn't keep his commandments, he is obviously a liar. His life does not match his words. I felt Paul and John are a bit harsh here, but what they're saying is absolutely true. The word is not here to nurse our feelings, church. The word is here to direct us, to correct us, to reprimand us, and ultimately to save our lives. Is that correct, church? So, how did we get here? Christian atheism, or how did I get here? I remember when I got baptized as an adult, I was in varsity. I was fully charged and ready to go anywhere Christ pointed. That father is still there, but life happened. Or rather, complacency took place. Everyone's Christian atheism journey differs. For some could be doubt that God really, really, really loves us. Does he really love me? There are seven billion people on earth. Does God really, really, really love me? For most of us, we drifted away from the fire because of shame of past sins. The deception that we are not worthy, the deception that we are unforgivable. Another reason why some parts of our lives don't reflect our faith is that for some of us, we live our lives in silos. We've got our lives compartmentalized. There is my Sunday persona. God bless you, brother so-and-so. And my personal favorite, oh, sister, I'll keep you in my prayers. <laughs> then there's my work persona, where, where I am unapproachable, 
I'm sarcastic, and I'm harsh-tongued. Then there's my Friday night out with my friend's persona, where anything goes, no restraint, and no godliness. You know, am I right? All right, let's move on. And if I'm dating, then there's my dating persona. You know, what is this? Yeah, I'm married, baby. But it's not that serious. You are the one I love. It's not that serious. You are the one I love. My wife and I are just friends. It happens, family. It happens. Here's something that is not that obvious at first. Some of us could have been taught incorrectly about God. When we were younger, we were told, this is what God is, or this is who God is. And it happens to be incorrect. Because as we become adults, we realize that that depiction of God that we have is not measuring up. What do I mean? Well, we might know the anti-science God where you either believe in science or you believe in God. You can't ask any science-related question in that environment. This is absolutely nonsense, of course. Science is only discovering what God has already done. Science and God are not at odds. Or you might be taught about the on-demand God. You know, just call out to God whenever you need something and he will quickly provide it. And if he doesn't provide it, I'll quickly fast, then surely he must provide it. God is waiting for me to tell him my will, and he will do it. And when he doesn't do it, I lose interest. That's another depiction of God, church, that some of us might have learned about. Or maybe you have learned about, I'm going to get you, God. You know that I'm going to get you, God. God who rules by fear and guilt. If I slip up here or there, he will be there to punish me and to make me feel guilty. Lastly, let's look at the bodyguard God. Every time I get into my car before I drive off, I say a prayer. <laughs> then one day, boom, I get robbed while in my car or I get into a car accident. Then I start wondering, where was the bodyguard God? Where were you, God? then I start losing interest. None of these represent our Heavenly Father. What will happen is that if we don't get rid of these depictions of God in our heads, they will discourage us as we will realize as adults that these don't apply. That is not who God is. The way for us to start surrendering our Christian atheism nature is to know God really, is to know him intimately. In the book of John 4, verse 24, we learn that God is spirit, the source of life, yet invisible to mankind, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So what are we learning? We learn that God is a spirit. 1 John 4, 8 tells us, the person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing 
The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. You can't know him if you don't love. This God, who is both spirit and love, says to his people in Isaiah 43 verse 4, And others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for yours because you are precious to me. You are honored and I love you. God says, you are honored. I love you. Yes, you with all your guilt, with all your fault. Yes, he knows your past. He knows your shame. He says, I love you as you are. This is who God is. God is love. All right, so God is love, God is spirit, but who is he to me and who is he to you personally? We sing songs at church, we call him healer, we call him comforter, we call him savior, we call him provider. These are beautiful adjectives, but they will remain head knowledge until we know him personally, until we get intimate with him. So how do we get intimate with God? How do we get to know him? I was quite surprised. The answer is actually very, very simple. Just start talking to him every day. Don't worry, you're not crazy. Just start talking to him every day. The very next decision, check with him. One decision at a time. Check with him. If you don't know what he's saying, check his word. In the morning when you wake up, greet him too. It's not complicated. When you do this, you'll start enjoying your relationship with him. And of course, every relationship needs watering. So you will start reading his word more and more. And like Uncle Natala said, you will join a church prayer group so you can get to spend more time with God. It would be so good for us to meet and you say, you know, the joy of saying, Jesus is my way maker. John, don't you know the situation I found myself in? There was no human solution but Jesus. But Jesus. Jesus pulled me through. He's my redeemer. John, don't you know how bad my addictions were? I was in a dark place. Jesus pulled me out. Jesus redeemed me. He is my redeemer. He's my provider. You don't know how bad things were financially. And he pointed me in the right direction. He showed me the right mentor. And he managed to get my finances back in order. John, the doctor said there was no solution. But here I am today talking to you. Jesus is my healer. Wouldn't that be good, church? Jesus is my healer. When both my parents died, one after another, you don't know the despair and the hopelessness I felt. My comforter comforted me, and he gave me hope. These are some of the personal testimonies I pray that we will all get to share about our intimate relationship and knowledge of Christ. I really do. But some of you might be sitting here thinking, John, I hear you about talking about talking to Christ and 
involving him in my daily decisions, that is for other people, not for me. Do you know the guilt I'm carrying? Do you know the shame I'm living with? Do you understand what has been done to me that makes me feel so dirty? John, there is no way I can even begin to invite Christ in this mess. If that's you today, without minimizing the reality of your situation, I'm here to tell you about a few people who I know have done worse things than you, yet God's grace was still sufficient. God's grace made a way. I'll fly through them quickly because we are not trying to glamorize the mess, but rather illuminate and highlight how unlimited God's love and grace is. It can wipe their slate clean and it can wipe mine and your slate clean. The first guy is Abraham. God promised him a child and he trusted God. But Abraham got impatient and he ended up impregnating his servant before his wife. What a mess. The next guy is Apostle Paul. Paul actually murdered a whole lot of Christians. He didn't believe that Christ was the Messiah. He was a serial killer of Christians. A serial killer of Christians. I'm not exaggerating. And after an encounter with God, he ended up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. You see, when it comes to messing up, we are in very good company when we read the Bible. Lastly, of course, King David, who lusted after one of his army general's wives. He then used his position as king to sleep with the wife. Then he had the husband killed. In fact, knowing and understanding the depth of his mess, and more importantly, knowing and understanding who God really is, King David wrote Psalm 51. Let's go through Psalm 51 together. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sins. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. You see, David knew about God's unfailing love. He understood the nature of God. He knew that only God can wash him clean of his guilt. You see, church, sin alienates us from God because sin wounds our conscience. And when our conscience is wounded, it condemns us. When we feel condemned, guilt drives us away from the presence of God. You see, sin does not change God. God remains loving. Sin changes us. Sin does not change God. God is always loving towards us in spite of our sin. We must be aware that sin robs us of the presence of God. Are we still together, church? Verse 4. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. Your judgment against me is just. David is saying, 
I have zero excuses. What I have done is evil. He's not making an excuse. He's not saying it's because of this or it's because of that or my wife was not around or whatever it is. He's owning up to what he did. And he's saying, whatever judgment you have for me, Lord, will be just because what I did was evil. Verse 7. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Again, David recognizes that only God can purify us. Not a better job, not a new partner, not a new anything. Only God can purify us. Amen, church? Only God can remove the heaviness of guilt that we carry. We cannot do it on our own. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. David understands again that only God can cleanse him. Only God can create the new heart in him. David was tired of the separation between him and God due to his sin. 11. Don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. This is so interesting. David asks God to make him willing to obey. You see, in our nature, we are weak. Especially after having slipped and experienced sin, we become weak. David understood that for us to stand stand tall, we need to lean on God. God is the one that makes us obey. If we think we are righteous, if we think I'm better than so-and-so, I can obey God all by myself, a day will come where you will fall because the devil will keep chipping away at your selfishness or at your self-reliance. You must always be relying on God. God is the one that makes us not sin. It's not us. Amen. Verse 16. You don't desire a sacrifice. Or I would offer one. It would be so nice. I do this and the punishment is two cows. I buy two cows, I slaughter, then my God is appeased. As it is with other religions. But God here does not desire sacrifice. You don't want a bent offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repented heart, O oh God. David understood that when we cry out to God with honest, remorseful hearts, it is in God's nature to forgive us. David knew God intimately. He knew the nature of God. So if God's grace was sufficient for Abraham, for Paul, for David. Surely it is sufficient for you and I. Let's not be deceived. God's grace is sufficient for you and I. Amen. In conclusion, as we resolve in our minds to embrace this new thing that God is doing, this new dawn, which is the new covenant in Christ, Please take down this scripture, study it, meditate over it, 
Romans 8, verse 38 39. For I'm convinced and continue to be convinced beyond any doubt that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present and threatening, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the unlimited love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here, church, we get absolute assurance that nothing, absolutely nothing you have done, thinking of doing, past failures, our Christian atheism nature, past embarrassments, things in your control, things out of your control, substance addiction, criminal record. Can I get real this morning, church? Your abortion, your sexual immorality, your witchcraft, whatever you can think or imagine, nothing can ever be able to separate you from God's unlimited love. Amen. It's there, freely available to us. All we need to do is lean into Christ and get to know him personally. Christ is the way through the desert. He's the water and he's the spring that will always be there. Just go earnestly to your savior, to your way maker, your cleanser, your life giver, and do what David did in Psalm 51 and say, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Scrub away my guilt. Purify me from my sin. And God who is love will give you a fresh start. And you will learn to have a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. And you will get to know all about our Lord and Savior. The Christian atheism in you and I will be surrendered for good. All glory and honor to Jesus Christ, our way in the wilderness. As the worship team comes up, I would like us to do God, to do business with God this morning. If you're like me and you know that the aspects of your life that reflect Christian atheism, please bow your heads and join me in a short prayer. Remember, there's no such thing as a special prayer. All we need to do is to go to our Heavenly Father and pray in truth and in spirit, being honest and vulnerable about the subject matter that we are going to our Father with. Please bow your heads and repeat after me. My healer, my forgiver, I come to you this morning. I say I am tired. I'm tired of not living according to your teachings. This morning, Lord, I lay down my earthly crowns. I want to know you personally. I don't just want to be a churchgoer. I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want a fresh start, oh, fresh start, oh Lord. I know you love me. I know you love me. I know you love me. 
I surrender my self-reliance, Lord. Please do a new work in me. In the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank you.